I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, we did what we could to prohibit torture, including working to, to legislate that change. For Barack Obama, who's coming into office, the disruption of taking on a prosecution of U.S. officials would have been a consuming thing for him to do. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Mehdi Hassan. Barack Obama was one of the most polarizing presidents of the modern era, and his foreign policy was particularly polarizing. To liberals the world over, he was like Neo from The Matrix. He was the one, the messiah who came to fix the world order after the chaos and crimes that came before him, who reclaimed America from the Bush machine. Obama even won a Nobel Peace Prize in his first year in office, some would say simply for not being George W. Bush. Clear-eyed, we can understand that there will be war and still strive for peace. We can do that, for that is the story of human progress. To his right-wing critics, though, Obama was a weak, feckless leader who led from behind and went on apology tours while failing to crack down on radical Islamic terrorism or quote-unquote illegal immigrants. Thousands of Americans would be alive today if not for the open border policies of Obama and Clinton. Now, the appeaser-in-chief, he gave Iran $150 billion. Here's Obama surrendering to the radical mullahs. But to his critics on the left, he was the drone president, bombing villages in Pakistan, assassinating Americans without trial in Yemen, arming rebels in Syria, launching a military intervention in Libya without congressional approval. He was also to them, of course, the deporter-in-chief. His immigration crackdowns in many ways opened the doors to today's horror show at the border under Donald Trump. President Obama deported two and a half million immigrants. He destroyed thousands of families. No other president had done something like that. Now, you might not be surprised to hear that I happen to think the right-wing critique of Obama's foreign policy is a lot of BS. But I also happen to think that the left-wing critique of him can sometimes be a little simplistic. Because there's the Obama who, yes, embraced US empire, killed a lot of civilians and sold weapons to some awful regimes, as every US president does. But there's also the Obama who pulled off the biggest diplomatic breakthrough of our time, the Iran nuclear deal, who managed to get the US to sign up to the Paris Climate Accords, who reopened ties with Cuba, all in the face of blind Republican opposition. So my question today is, with Donald Trump now in office, is it time to recognise Obama maybe wasn't as bad as we all thought? You know, everything's relative in life. Or is it in fact time for liberals to have a proper reckoning with Obama's foreign policy legacy, to recognise that Obama's excesses, whether in the Middle East or at the Mexico border, led the way to Trump's? My guest today was at President Obama's side every step of the way over the course of those two terms in office. Ben Rhodes joined the Obama election campaign in 2007 as a foreign policy speechwriter when he was just 29 and rose to become a deputy national security advisor at the White House, who was so intellectually and ideologically close to his boss that he was often described as having a mind meld with Obama. 
Ben, who currently works at the Obama Foundation, has written a new book, The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. And earlier this week, I interviewed him about Obama's rather contentious foreign policy record. I began by asking him about the Iran nuclear deal that he helped negotiate and whether it was frustrating for him to see Donald Trump tearing up that deal while going off to Singapore to hug and embrace Kim Jong-un and getting nothing comparable to the Iran deal in return. Well, I, I have to say uh, it could make you crazy uh, if, if you thought about it. Um, I mean, as I detail in the book, it actually took really seven years to get all the way to the Iran deal because it was years of sanctions followed by years of painstaking diplomacy, followed by a Herculean effort to ensure that Congress uh, didn't blow up the deal. Um, to put in place, as you said, really the most stringent uh, inspections and verification regime that had ever been negotiated in a deal like that. And then Trump, who near as I could tell, you know, could not even tell you what was in the Iran deal. He, he just liked to say how bad <laughs> it was. Um, goes to Singapore, gets a, a several hundred word statement that has just a reaffirmation from North Korea of the same promise that they'd broken in the past to denuclearize. No inspections, no verification, no timeline. Um, and he gives away a bunch of stuff, including military exercises with South Korea, and then declares that you know himself a hero and uh, um, you know is awarding himself the Nobel Prize. So um, you know the, there was kind of no end <laughs> to the uh, mm. the hypocrisy in addition to the recklessness. Do you believe now that given what Trump has done with the nuclear deal, given the likes of John Bolton working down the corridor from him, that we're now on a path to war with Iran? Well, I certainly think it's far more likely. Um, you know, there's an element of uh, the dog catching the car um, in that they've been railing against the Iran deal for years, but um, uh, it's not clear to me that they know what to do now that Trump has scrapped it. What I fear is going to happen, Mehdi, is that there will be an unraveling of the deal. Um, the Iranians, as they don't receive the benefits that uh, they thought they would get from the deal because the United States isn't in it, um, start you know, testing the boundaries, start perhaps restarting elements of their nuclear program. There's all kinds of flashpoints in that region where mm. uh, we could find ourselves quickly on a road to conflict. I remember, Ben, when I last interviewed you for my Al Jazeera TV show up front back in the fall of 2015, back in the White House, um, I grilled you quite hard yes. on Syria yeah. policy, yeah. on drone strikes uh, and various other issues about foreign policy, which I hope we have time to get back into today, later today, with the benefit of hindsight. But just one thing that stood out to me, I remember, was not something you said on air. But after the interview was over, we were chatting. And I don't know if you remember this. You said to me, you said, and I quote, you'll miss us when we're gone. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you were referring at that time to the prospect of a hawkish Hillary Clinton succeeding Barack Obama. That was the assumption, of course, from all of us. Yeah. Uh, of course, it turned out to be the even more hawkish, more belligerent Donald Trump, a man who shouldn't be allowed near an air rifle, let alone a nuclear weapon. Yeah. So look, I'll be honest. Let me <laughs> put my cards on the table. I was very critical of Barack Obama for much of his presence, yes, especially yeah. on foreign policy. But right now, you know, 2018, a year and a half into Trump, I do miss Obama. You were right. <laughs> yeah. I, I do miss him. Well, I, uh, I or wish at least, that, let me call it. I wish that wasn't the case, Matty. For the greater good, I, I wish. No, no, I, uh, I wish it wasn't thing. the case as yeah. well. But, but let me qualify. I miss the Obama of the Iran deal. I miss the Obama of the Cuba reopening. Yep. I miss the Obama of the P Paris Climate Change Agreement. That yep. Obama. Yes. Let's turn to the stuff I don't miss about Obama, if you don't mind. Gina Haspel was recently confirmed, very controversially, as Trump's director of the CIA, despite having been in 
in charge of a CIA black site at which torture was allegedly carried out and despite destroying taped evidence of that torture. The vast majority of Senate Democrats voted against her. You said on Twitter that her nomination turned into a referendum on a dark chapter of our history that should be over. But it's not over, Ben, because your administration, your president, Barack Obama, refused to prosecute CIA torturers, decided to look forward, not back, when you came to office in 2009. Given Gina Haspel is director of the CIA today as a direct result of that decision by your administration, do you have any regrets about how you handled that situation, about how you handled the torturers? Uh, I do have some regrets, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, you know, I, I hope the book shows kind of the complexity of the presidency. You know, he's sitting there. He's looking at, you know, over the abyss of a Great Depression um, and the, the disruption of taking on a prosecution of U.S. officials, sorting out who is in that bucket and who isn't, would have been a consuming thing for him to do. Um, and, and really uh, something that could have broken apart, essentially, you know, the connective tissue of the president to his own agencies. You know, we did what we could to prohibit torture, including working to, to legislate that change. Um, and, you know, you have in Donald Trump a president who takes a very different view. Um, to me, that shows that elections have consequences. But he's able to take that view, Ben, because you didn't torture, you didn't prosecute the people I, who did it. I don't think or at so, Medi. Fire them all. Gina Haspel stayed on at the CIA on your watch. Yeah, it but the, like you fired her. the thing I'd say, Maddie, is like even if we had fired her or prosecuted people, Donald Trump still could would have been elected president and could still take those positions, right? So, in elect in democracies, maybe you know, he'd be less. Maybe he'd be more reluctant if people were behind bars. Uh, I mean, let I me don't put think this so. to you. I mean, let me put this yeah. to you. Okay, let me put this to you, Ben. You didn't prosecute the torturers. Yeah. You didn't prosecute the bankers. You failed to stop Israel from building illegal settlements, and you hired a bunch of people who supported the Iraq War to run your foreign policy. Even if you don't agree <laughs> with them, do you understand at least? No, do you understand at least why so many on the left think you guys were so timid? You missed so many opportunities to really make a proper break with the past in 2009, 2010, and beyond. I understand that. I do think that in those early years, we took a more cautious and conventional approach to foreign policy. Uh, again, I do think some of that was guided by the fact that the economic situation we found in was so overwhelming that President Obama felt like he had to start there um, and that it was going to be hard for him um, in that first year to dedicate the type of focus to some of these foreign policy issues uh, that he got to later in his administration uh, as he's essentially trying to prevent the global economy from collapsing. Here's what I don't get, Ben. Barack Obama clearly wasn't a fan personally of Benjamin Netanyahu or of the Saudi uh, royal family. And you've been very critical of Israel and Saudi since leaving office and even a little bit while in office. Yeah. And yet, when you look objectively at the record of your administration, you guys were ludicrously pro-Israeli and pro-Saudi. When push came to shove, when Netanyahu was bombing Gaza, you resupplied him with ammunition in the middle of the bombing campaign. When Saudi started bombing Yemen in 2015, you helped them do it with fuel, with arms, with intel, with diplomatic protection at the UN. Today, Yemen is the world's worst humanitarian crisis. That started on your watch, not Donald Trump's. Well, uh, take both of those. Um, on, on Israel, look, I mean, there's a baseline of support that the United States is always going to provide to Israel. And on Iran, I'd say, Mehdi, we, we have the scars. And I personally have the scars uh, to prove that we weren't afraid to take a position contrary to Prime Minister Netanyahu and no, the Iran Definitely deal. on Iran, um, you took on the Israelis. But on Gaza, when kids were, 500 kids were killed in the summer of 2014, I don't remember you having any scars on your back then. Well, what, where I feel like we, uh, we got caught in between, is, and I, I tell this story 
several examples of in the book was on the peace process with the Palestinians, where I did feel like we fell into traps several times where, uh, you know, we were doing just enough to cause a rift with Prime Minister Netanyahu, but but not enough to advance the ball. Um, and, you know, we we didn't put forward a peace plan at the beginning of the administration. Uh, I think in retrospect, uh, that would have been a good thing to do. Uh, we kind of spent a lot of time in a peace process in, in 2011 and 12 and 13 that was clearly going nowhere in part because um, you didn't have any political from the Israeli government. All that said, you know, we I don't know that there was some lever we could have pulled to uh, to to impose uh, a, a peace. Uh, ultimately, um, you know, if 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 it's like peace, Rabin, if, but well, you could have stopped. You could have stopped them in the summer of twenty fourteen. Eventually, you did stop them in the summer of twenty fourteen. You could have done it earlier, and you didn't have to give them ammo in the middle of that war. Well, we as they bombed Palestinian yeah, hospitals, we, schools. We, we spent a lot of time trying to bring about ceasefires and. Uh, to end those uh, conflicts. I I think this is an issue, Mehdi, when I think back on it, where, you know, we were pursuing a certain approach of trying to restrain them, but trying to work with them, thinking that working with them could allow us to better shape um, what they were doing in Yemen and get this into a political process. And it's the kind of thing that if, if you know, if we did know that Donald Trump was going to be president um, and, and there wouldn't be some continuity in that approach, that, you know, I think in retrospect, we should have been more restrictive in supporting what they were doing in Yemen. Um, so th- that's an example of a, a case where um, the the dramatic shift in the orientation of uh, the Trump administration makes me look back differently. You know, if, 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 if there had been some continuity with a Clinton administration, I think you would have seen continued efforts to promote a political resolution and perhaps to restrain do you regret, the Saudi efforts. Do, do you regret the fact that Obama offered Saudi Arabia, according to one study, more than... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. $115 billion in weapons and military training, more than any other U.S. administration in history. Do you regret that? Uh, you know, I, I think that our approach, um, you know, which was very visible for everybody to see um, in the last, especially in the last two or three years, um, was to go to the Saudis and the other GCC countries um, and, and try to get them uh, to reorient some of their approach to uh, their defense away from even the big ticket hardware that they like to purchase, away from the kind of air campaign that you saw in Yemen, and and say to them, look, if you have concerns about certain threats from Iran and ISIS that are asymmetric, right, like 
uh, interdicting weapons shipments, like cybersecurity, like missile defense. You should focus your uh, your defense procurement on those capabilities. So, look, they are partners of the United States. Uh, they, they, we do have shared threats with uh, uh, terrorist groups and, in some cases, Iranian actions in the region. Um, so, I, I, I don't regret that. You know, we were trying, I think, to get them to pursue a different approach to how they thought about their security than what we're seeing in Yemen. What I can tell you also, Mehdi, is that like all the things that we've seen happen. Uh, the, the escalation of the war in Yemen, the blockade on Qatar, uh, the strange episode with the Lebanese prime minister. You know, we had spent a lot of effort to try to restrain those types of, you know, the, the origins of those uh, actions we could see in our administration. And we worked hard diplomatically to prevent those from happening. I think we're seeing under Trump what happens when essentially there's no constraints whatsoever. Hillary Clinton famously criticized you and your boss for not having a grand organizing principle for foreign policy. She said, quote, don't do stupid shit is not an organizing principle. Now, personally, I happen to be with you and your boss on this. I happen to think don't do stupid shit is a pretty good rule of thumb for U.S. foreign policy. So given that, let's talk about what you think the stupidest shit was that your administration (laughs) did. (laughs) Was it Libya? which Obama publicly called his worst mistake and privately called a shit show? Or was it Syria, as you seem to suggest in your book and in an an extract from your book that got a lot of attention in The Atlantic magazine recently? Well, actually, you know, um, uh, first of all, I think it is a good rule of thumb. um, And it's not the be all end all. I think that's the foundation, right, that you start from. And then you try to, on top of that, yeah. you have Iran, Cuba, Paris, where we're doing things affirmatively. It's interesting, Matty. When I look back on it, um, it's something you and I used to talk about. I, I wish we had done more um, to, frankly, bring to an end the war in Afghanistan um, and obviously some of the associated um, counterterrorism efforts. I, I, it's a very good the, point. The, 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 put it this way, the, the, the broad direction of the United States being in a kind of an open-ended, permanent state of war, um, I wish we had done more uh, to change that. Now, obviously, in Iraq and Syria, you know, ISIS did demand a military action. But in Afghanistan, you know, we're 15 years in. I don't think people can articulate why we're still there. I, people can warn about all kinds of scenarios if we leave, but all of those scenarios are taking place with us there. And, and I think it raises the question of whether or not America is getting ourselves into wars um, without you know, any clear idea of what we're trying to achieve or how they will end. But, this, but Ben, wouldn't it have helped... And I get, and I'm, and, you know, the people talk about your mind meld with Obama. And when you speak, you're often reflecting some of Obama's views. And, and, you know, I encourage people to read the book if they want to get it inside of Obama, not just your views before yeah. Obama's own memoir comes out. But what I don't get is I hear you saying this and I kind of I'm nodding in agreement. And I, and I used to nod when I used to see you be interviewed in the White House. Wouldn't it have helped uh, to end this open ended military posture of the U.S. If, if Obama had not filled his administration with card carrying hawks from the get go. Hillary Clinton, Rahm Emanuel, Leon Panetta, Susan Rice. The list goes on. All very bright people, but all people who quite like the idea of America being involved in lots of conflicts. Well, you know, I do describe in the book that the Afghan review in 2009, I think, was a more important event than, you know, people probably yes, think now in that. You know, that was a pretty extraordinary process where essentially um, they, they came to him with one option uh, to, to surge in an open-ended way 40,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan uh, with no timeline to get them to bring them down. 
Um, and despite months of meetings, you know, I detail whatever Obama did to try to refine the objectives, the, the recommendation was the same. Um, and what he ended up doing was imposing a timeline on the surge. Um, but in fact, you know, just the fact of the surge itself would make it very hard for us uh, to, by the end of the administration, fully extricate ourselves from Afghanistan. Um, and I do think that there was a mindset that, that drove that process um, that uh, was out of step with what President Obama was looking for. And the interesting thing is that going forward, he was much more vigilant in uh, working to try to constrain that type of open-ended escalation and the options that, that came to him. And of course, he got charged with micromanaging the military relentlessly. Um, but, he, but Ben, yeah. here's what I don't get. If you're saying this about Afghanistan and prolonged conflicts, all of which I don't disagree with what you're saying, how do you then explain Syria? Because you've been criticized a lot. I've been listening to your interviews on the book tour. Uh, you talk about in the book about how you were criticized for not doing enough on Syria. I remember being at an event in D.C. a couple of years ago where Syrian opposition members were berating you for not doing enough at an event. Um, and you were, also, you, know, you were the public face who came out and defended Obama. I want to come at the other direction and say, well, did you intervene too much in Syria? Because the CIA spent hundreds of millions of dollars funding and arming anti-Assad rebels. A lot of those arms, as you know, ended up in the hands of uh, jihadist groups, some even in the hands of ISIS. Your critics would say you exacerbated that proxy war in Syria. You prolonged the conflict in Syria. You ended up bolstering jihadists. Well, what I try to do in the book is, you know, essentially raise... Um, you know, all the second guessing on Syria uh, tends to be actually not 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 what you expressed, Mehdi, but you know the notion of we should have taken military action. Yes. What I, I do in the book is I try to look back at 2011, 2012. Um, was there a diplomatic um, window that we missed, or that we in some ways escalated its closure by pivoting to uh, the call for Assad to go, which obviously I believe should happen. I believe Assad has been a terrible leader for Syria and has brutalized his people. But, you know, was there a diplomatic initiative that could have been taken to try to avert or at least minimize the extent of the civil war? Um, because, you know, what ended up happening essentially there is, uh, you know, we, we were probably too um, optimistic that, you know, after Mubarak went and uh, Ben Ali and uh, eventually Saleh and Gaddafi, that, that um, you would have... Um, a situation where Assad would go, um, and you know, not factoring in enough the the assistance he was going to get from Russia and Iran, combined with his own nihilism, and how that could lead him to to survive. So, mm. I do look back at that at that potentially missed diplomatic opportunity on the support to the opposition. Um, you know, I I I don't know that. Um, I would give us that much agency. I, I there are a lot of people putting arms into Syria, um, funding all sorts. Oh come of on! Groups. But you were coordinating a lot of that arms. You know, the U.S. was heavily involved well, in that war yeah, with but the look, Saudis uh, yeah, and the Qataris but, and the Turks. Uh, well, I was going to say Turkey, Qatar, Saudi. I mean, uh, the the you were in there as well. Yeah, but uh, but the, the the fact of the matter is, is that um, you know once it it devolved into kind of a a, a sectarian based civil war with different sides fighting for their perceived survival, um, you know, th I think we, you know, the ability to bring that type of of situation to a close, and, and part of what I wrestle with in the book is the limits of our ability to pull a lever and make, make killing like that stop once it's underway. So that's why I still look to that, that, that initial opening window. I also describe 
kind of uh, there was a slight absurdity in the fact that we were debating options to provide military support to the opposition at the same time that we were deciding to designate al-Nusra, a big chunk of that opposition, as a terrorist organization. So there was kind of a schizophrenia in, in, that's inherent in a lot of U.S. foreign policy that that came to a head in, in no, that's Syria. A, that's, a very, that's a very good word, especially to describe Syria policy. We're almost out of time. I just want to do, I do want to ask you this. You mentioned earlier, um, you know, if we'd known Trump was coming next, we maybe would have modified our policy on Saudi or on Yemen or whatever. And I think that would apply to a lot of areas if you'd known Trump was coming next. What do you say to those of your critics who say you left behind this expanded, uh, secretive, unaccountable executive branch, uh, an entire architecture of NSA surveillance, assassination programs, drone programs, uh, not to mention the precedent of launching wars without congressional approval like Libya. You left that behind for Donald Trump to inherit, to use, to abuse. You basically left behind a loaded gun for Donald Trump to start firing. Yeah, but the problem with that, Mehdi, is that Congress was never, ever going to take any ownership of that stuff. Uh, we tried desperately just to get an AUMF, an authorization to use force on ISIS. We, if we had a, a Congress that we po- could have possibly worked with, we certainly would have uh, you know, tried to amend the existing AUMF, which dates back to post 9-11. I'm, I'm, not defending, I'm not defending Congress, but you know, Congress didn't force you to bring in new innovations like executing an American citizen via drone strike, which no previous president had done, which now Donald Trump has the power to do. Yeah, but I think people should understand, though, that Congress provides the architecture of all of these authorities. You know, they date back to post 9-11. They date back to the Bush administration, the, the Patriot Act, uh, the authorization to use military force. Um, so essentially, uh, even if we had you know, terminated a lot of the but things- it was, But people... it was expanded on your watch, Ben. It's not about terminating, not terminating. Obama expanded it. I get why. I, I understand the reasoning. We don't have time to get into it. You know, yeah. He didn't want to you know, invade and occupy countries. This was a lighter military footprint. I get all of that. Yeah, but the yeah. point, it was, ex- it was expanded on his watch. And now you have Donald Trump with all those powers. Well, Surely that it, must scare it, it the was ex- it, Well, certainly <laughs> Donald Trump with any kind of power scares me. But it was expanded and contracted. I mean, we had we had- um, contracted it by the end. But I do think, you know, the, the Obama, you know, the, the, the challenges in our foreign policy, uh, again, you know, they're, they, they, some of the things that you're uncomfortable with and some of your listeners, I'm sure, you know, one person, even in the president of the United States, can't alter that direction. Uh, again, like, you know, the congressional incentives, we couldn't close Gitmo. I mean, <laughs> despite our efforts, the, there was literally nothing we could do because Congress True. wouldn't let us do it. So some of these things, the authorities given to a president to, to wage war, uh, to use tools like drones, to conduct surveillance, those authorities uh, would were going to be there no matter what Barack Obama did, um, because that's the orientation of Congress. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, changing the direction of American foreign policy, even if you think we could have done more uh, to, to truly address some of those issues, you know, there's going to have to be a shift in how Congress approaches them. Ben Rhodes, thanks for taking time out and coming on the show to talk about Obama's record. I appreciate you coming here, taking some of these more critical questions. Uh, yeah. Good luck with the book tour. Thanks, Matty. That was Ben Rhodes, former top Obama advisor and author of the new book, The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. And that's our show. Deconstructed will be back next week for the last show of the season before our summer break, much earned. And we'll be keeping a close eye on the US Supreme Court, which is expected to deliver its ruling on Donald Trump's Muslim ban any day now. 
Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept and is distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Zach Young. Dina Sayed Ahmed is our production assistant. Lital Molard is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice. And if you're an Android user, Google has just released a new podcast app. You can hear Deconstructed on there as well. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.